Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Today, I am really excited to welcome to the show Sheila Wise Rowe, who is the author of a new book called Young, Gifted, and Black, and also Healing Racial Trauma, which is the topic of our episode today. We talk a lot about trauma here, but we've never talked about racial trauma, and that needs to change. So I'm really excited that Sheila is with us. She holds a master's degree in counseling psychology and has ministered to abuse and trauma survivors in the United States and in South Africa. She has taught counseling and trauma-related courses. She lives in Boston, and she's awesome. So welcome to the show, Sheila. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. What else do people need to know about you? Well, I think you covered a lot of it in terms of my background. Um, I've worked uh, many years as a licensed marriage and family therapist, um, also uh, in social work in various settings, um, secular as well as Christian, helped start a uh, counseling center out of the church that we attended. Um, see, what else you did? I, we lived in France for a little bit, in Paris, um, and have been back from South Africa after 10 years, um, and we came back in 2016. And we've been back, and it's been an eye-opener, <laughs> to say the least. One last thing is that I, my background is that I am a, Bos- I am a Bostonian, and um, I was born in Boston. My parents were from the South, and, and they basically migrated to Boston, and that's my formative years have been spent here. Uh, and I'm married to a man who is actually a immigrant from Britain, but they, his family is West Indian. And um, so, yeah, and we have two adult children. That's it. <laughs> awesome. And in the book, Healing Racial Trauma, you talk a lot about your own personal journey and your husband's personal journey. Why did you write this book? Well, you know, as I said, coming back in 2016, we really were shocked in many ways. And I think that, and, and, Maybe it's because of where we live, too. We live in the Northeast, and so um, the climate is very different. So although there are issues around racism, um, when it's blatant, it's blatant. It's blatantly clear that in the North, there was a tendency just to kind of, people would say one thing and do another, but you wouldn't really know. And there are people I know from the South who say it's very different. Um, And like, you really have a sense of what people really feel and think. and uh, so that was a bit of a challenge uh, coming back and just seeing that all the filters were off and people were just kind of saying whatever they wanted to say, doing whatever they wanted to do. Um, and any, it just like any level of civility was like gone. Um, and, you know, the racism that was there in Boston, that's kind of embedded in a lot of the, the systems in Boston continued. But now, you know, it was like people were just kind of doing stuff. So it was a, it was a bit of a shocker um, coming back. And, um, and then as I really have been praying about it, and, um, and I, I have to say that the, that prayer actually happened even before arriving back, because we were able to, to see news reports and things that were happening, um, you know, Tamir Rice, him being killed, and, and so many others. And, um, and it was disturbing to me. And you know, I began to see like the linkages between 
some of the therapy that I've been doing with people and issues of racism that had come up and the trauma around that and that no one was really looking at that issue. Um, it was really more about, you know, fighting the power or um, getting out there and overturning, which is important. But the, the part about how is this impacting individuals and communities, that was not really being addressed. Um, there were there, there is some research that does go back a while, but nobody was really focusing on that in a significant way. And so um, that's kind of what, and I feel like it was the Lord's prompting me to write it. I started writing it in 2018. And so, you know, some people are like, oh, well, it was released in 2020. Like, you know, I just saw what was happening. I was like, let me write this book. It's like, no, the book actually, the writing of it predated um, what happened and what we saw in 2020. Um, and, and, and even with IVP, my publisher, like they didn't purposely go, oh, let's see when's it, like they were clueless. They really were, they were not, it was not strategic, you know, um, it totally was God's timing. And it's so necessary. It's so important for all of us to enter this conversation. And some of us have been in it for a while, And some of us are brand new to it. We have men from all different backgrounds who are listening to this podcast. So why is it important for all of us to engage? I think that, you know, as, and I'm going to speak it from the perspective of as believers, as believers, you know, we are part of, you know, the family of God. So whatever hurts one part of the body hurts me, Um, you know, and so, and and vice versa. So we have got to really think in that way of what does it mean to be the bride of Christ? What does it mean to carry one another's burdens and to care about what is happening? Um, Whether I totally understand the person's story or their lives, but as a member of the body, I need to, and I should, and I believe it's scripturally mandated that I actually uh, consider my brother and sister in Christ. And so it's it's important for, um, I think on two levels, one is that because this conversation about racial trauma hasn't really been discussed for a lot of not just black people, but black people, indigenous people, Asian, Latino, et cetera, they are also realizing like, wow, this is what this is. I didn't know what it was, but now I have an understanding for what it is. And then for a lot of, of our white brothers and sisters, it's it's been like an eye opener. It's like, I didn't know. I didn't know any of that history. I didn't know how that would impact a person's individual life. Now I know. And now I have an opportunity to show some compassion. I have an opportunity to um, really look at how does that play out, not on an individual level only, but systemically. And how, you know, what would the Lord want me to do in the midst of that, even locally in my community with my neighbor? Yeah. And even for me as a white man, I feel like entering this conversation has blessed me and has contributed to my healing and not just my brothers. And I love how you talked about how if this issue affects some of us, it affects all of us. Yeah, exactly. So when we talk about racism, we all might have different ideas about that. You describe some of the different forms of racial trauma. What are they? So there are two two different conversations. So one is about racism. And I think many people mistakenly think that, oh, it's just that I hate whoever. I hate Asians. I hate Black people. That's one piece. 
there are various forms. And so, you know, you, what that describes is the interpersonal racism that occurs. But we, we do see the realities of systemic racism and whether people want to deal with that or not, it is historical. The facts are there that there have been systems that have been in place um, and that have impacted whether it's how, you know, where is a person allowed to live? So we're dealing with issues around um, spatial stuff. We're dealing with issues around what does it mean to have a community where all the monuments are Confederate monuments or whatever? You don't see any representation of anybody else. What does that mean? And what does that do to a person, um, to their children who are seeing this? Like, who are the heroes and who are not the heroes? Um, what does it mean uh, when racism is embedded in the medical profession in terms of experimentation that was done on Black folk particularly, and how we're seeing, even now, you fast forward to COVID and the early days of the epidemic in terms of who got treatment and who did not get treatment. And I can definitely testify to having a relative who had all of the symptoms, every single thing, had gone to California, had been exposed to somebody there, had all of the things, but they refused to test her. Um, and it was it was there was no reason, and this was the very early days. So yes, there's been some inroads, but the reality is that people were were affected by that. Um, you see it in many ways in terms of even how people are um, treated um, emotionally and mentally. What are the supports that are there, and are are therapists qualified and and even um, educated around how do you how do you serve minority populations? And so um, you see it there, you see uh, it in salaries, <laughs> like who gets paid what? I mean, if one study in Boston talked about the percentage of how much money uh, in terms of wealth that has been passed down generationally, that for the average white Bostonian, um, I think it was in the 200, it was over 200,000 in equity. And it could be that it's all that equity is in a house or it's in whatever, or it's in a bank. Um, and the average equity in the black community was $8. And, and a lot of that, it can be, see, the thing with this is with racism is that we can look at that and go, well, it's just because they just don't work hard. That is not true. So, um, because if you've been, if there's redlining, if there, you, there are barriers to your getting loans, if they're, you're trying to do things like start a business and there's sabotage in terms of uh, all of that, you are not going to make inroads. And, and in my family, certainly all of those things were in play um, as a Bostonian. And Boston is just one example. This is across the country. Right. There was the, the massacre in Tulsa 100 years ago. Yes, exactly. But you know what? what? I think people do not realize is that, and I want the your audience to do the research. Tulsa was one community. There were multiple communities around the entire country that experienced the very same thing, that there was some kind of backlash and it was based on whatever, some alleged crime that was never, ever proved, and the entire community was decimated. And so if you think about what was lost, um, I think of the the 107-year-old, I believe, the woman who um, testified, and she I, I was just blown away. I'm like, what? She was 100, over 100 years old and so like clear and with it and just talking about the impact. And when she talked about just how she holds on to that, she still sees that in her mind. She still 
you know, smells the burning wood and the buildings and the trauma of like her entire community as a child, she basically woke up one morning and it was wonderful. Her family was thriving, loved her community. And then by the, by the next day, it was all gone. And, and that trauma, she still carries to that day. And there were several other elders with her who were basically saying the same thing. And so that is racial trauma is that we have these experiences, whether it seems like it's small or it's not. Um, in the book, I, I unpack even more of those instances. Um, but we carry that if we don't address it, if we, we're not able to, to look at it for various reasons. Um, and then we start to see it play out in how we respond. Um, I think one thing that people tend to downplay in terms of response is that, you know, some, some are very clear and they're very similar to like PTSD in terms of difficulty concentrating, you know, there's, you know, maybe anger is coming up, depression, um, you know, you could be dealing with physical ailments as well. Um, and it can be kind of, you know, kind of clear, like this is, this is a response, like a shutting down, even um, a freezing Yet what they don't recognize is that there are also these microaggressions that occur and people can, whatever, they can label people as snowflakes or you're overly sensitive. But the reality though, is that for many of the people who, and including myself, you know, experience microaggressions, it's not just the first time. And so if you think about it, if you think about some of the instances where young men were pulled over by law enforcement, and they reacted in a certain way. It's a, they reacted in a trauma response kind of a way. Um, and because they have experienced, in many cases, over hundreds of times they have been pulled over. And it has been totally microaggression. There was nothing to, for them to be pulled over. If you think about, it wasn't even just being pulled over by law enforcement. It was going to the supermarket and being tailed. You have the recent incident of the director of Black Panther who went to the bank and he was like, want to withdraw a load of money. And he wrote a note saying, please, you know, please don't announce this. Well, you want 12,000 withdrawn? You know, he was like, just be discreet or whatever. The teller went into a panic, you know, basically called 911, like I'm being robbed. Like he literally, his life could have been over um, because of a mistake. And, and he was following typically what people would do is that you don't, you don't, you know, you're taking large sums of money out. You're not going to make an announcement in the bank um, with everybody around. Uh, and so, but that's one, one, that's a prominent incident. But we all have those experiences. And they, on top of the historical trauma of, and so whether it is uh, Japanese Americans, and I have a story in the book of a man, a Japanese American and his family and the the trauma of the Japanese internment and how that visited upon his father and how that trickled down to how his father raised him. And so we see that with all of these different um, people of color that uh, we carry the past and we're also dealing with the present at the same time. And so that's a lot of weight to carry. And so if you think about some of the themes and the experiences, everybody experiences, no matter what color you are. But then when you layer that on top of the experiences that I have that are common to you as well. But then there's this whole other layer. It complicates things. Um, there's a lot of more weight that we're carrying and has a lot more impact. And so it, it affects how we respond. And one of those responses is that we medicate. And so we may medicate with food. We may medicate with porn. We 
um, I have one of the stories is about a man who that his addiction was pornography and how the racial trauma that he experienced growing up. Um, he is a biracial man, black father, white mother living in the city and just all of that experience and his feeling the need to, I've got to perform. I've got to be perfect. I, you know, his parents basically were given the message literally like their marriage was not of God. Like, and therefore he should not even exist. And so he felt like I've got to prove myself. I've got to be perfect. I've got to, in the face of all that I'm experiencing uh, around racism, uh, I'm, I, I have to be on. And this form became the, the medication, became the outlet, um, a way to deal and to, to feel like this is the one place where I'm not perfect. Yeah. Because it sounds like for him, even making one little mistake could have huge disastrous consequences. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So porn was a release for the pressure. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you also talk about the fatigue, <laughs> the, the fatigue as a result of carrying this weight. Absolutely. And I think that that also ties into the whole thing with pornography because it's in that place of fatigue. It's kind of like, well, I need, I need an outlet, whatever you know, I need an outlet. I need something that nobody's behind me driving, telling me you need to do better. You need to work. So I need an outlet. And so this is going to be it. My own little private outlet. No one's going to know and it'll be fine. And then it's not fine. Yeah. A place of a little bit of power, control, safety, Yep. all important needs. Yes. And the thing about it is that ultimately with, and, and it's not just with addictions, when you're dealing with racial trauma, not dealing with it, and but finding these other ways, including denial. Denial is another one where we're going to just deny that it's an issue. Um, it always comes back to bite us. It always does. It never, and even the porn stuff, it's like, it's, you know, it's like sin in general satisfies for a moment. To be honest, it does. For a moment, but if it, what on the back end of it is just a mess. <laughs> oh, it's just, it creates a mess. It is a mess. Yeah. And so this is so helpful to see some of the mess that contributed and paved the way for the mess that we're in right now. So what does healing racial trauma look like? Well, the first, very first step, and you know what, if you think about so in the chapter on addictions, the, the man that I'm sharing his story, like he, his journey was clearly through 12 steps, um, through, through a 12 step program. And the first really being, you know, coming to that place of coming out of denial and basically saying, I, I've lost, I don't have any control and I'm surrendering to an authority higher than myself. And so that is the first step because, because the reality is as believers, like our, our healing is rooted in Christ, you know, his, his complete and finished work on the cross. That's where, that's the source of strength. That same power that rose Jesus from the dead is actually in resident in us. It really is. And the thing is that we can get so lost in a lot of the conversations that are going out there about everything from, you don't really need to be concerned about it, you know, to glorifying pornography, to you know, um, you know, these are the texts and the, um, the tips and the tools to kind of manage. And 
barrels are good, but at the same time, that same power is in us. It really is to help us to, to, to resist the temptation to say no. And then we start to really look at who, you know, and the walking it out, you know, whether it's with a therapist, whether it's a pastor, but sharing our whole story is so important because often we don't do that. We, we haven't had the opportunity to do that. Um, we see that a lot with people who have like big responsibilities or pastors or whatever, and they are just, they can't, they think my job, I could lose my job. You know, if I actually share what's really going on. And so to have those safe spaces where you can actually share are so, so essential. Um, and so looking, identifying where are those places where I can find, you know, safety to share, who are the people who are going to walk with me? Um, what is the plan? Um, I have this whole part in appendices um, that talks about resistance academy. It's just like, what are the things that, you know, to prepare yourself? Like, what are the triggers that, um, what triggers you? You know, and, and with racial trauma, because we haven't recognized that it's there, we may not even be aware. So some of the guys may not be aware that they have been triggered, that that incident that happened at work and the way in which they were slighted or treated, or even in the supermarket, you know, um, that those things are triggering. And so identifying what are your red flags, what are the triggers, um, and what do you need to have in place to support you in that? And who are the people to walk with you in it? Um, that's so important. Another piece with racial trauma is that we tend to, it's not just in our heads that, okay, emotionally we are feeling the trauma, but we also hold trauma in our bodies. And so I, I, I think that there's a link between the two. So if you think about pornography and just the, the need to release that stress out, that that's, that's part of the engagement of it. And so it's really looking at what are alternative ways to get that out of your body? to get that stress out, to release it. Yes, you're speaking it, but you're also, what's the physicality of getting it and releasing it in a way that is positive and is godly. And um, and so it is, it's exercise, it's movement. um, It's, and it may seem kind of trite, but the reality though, is that if you're really doing this in partnership with the Lord, then um, there's something supernatural that is happening. In this process, and I think that's so important that as as your your guys are looking at some other tools or whatever, like make sure that you're inviting Jesus in that process. Otherwise, you really are doing it in your own strength, and it may last for a little bit, but then it peters out. Um, but when we partner with God and like, Lord, is this going to be helpful? Um, he can really inform, like yes or or no. It's actually not going to be helpful because I see too often. Um, you know, we're just kind of grabbing at anything, you know, the bestseller, whatever, self-help book or whatever. <laughs> Thinking that'll do it. Like, mm, nah, not really. Yeah. I love what you said about if we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead living in us now, that's going to change the way that I do exercise. I want to invite Jesus into that. I want to let the Holy Spirit lead me. Yeah, exactly. And the Holy Spirit's not going to lead you to a certain area of town. I mean, there's certain things that, you know, you have to be really strategic about what does my life look like? What is my soul care plan? My plan to take care of myself. And this is probably nothing new to you guys. You've probably been told that, but it's like, Lord, Lord, you inform me. 
around what is it that I really need? Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. And so really listening for um, what is he saying? What is he saying through scripture? What is he saying in prayer? What is he saying in praying with other people um, that will help me to navigate through this? Because we're, you know, you're going to get a lot, you get stuff thrown at you all the time. (laughs) Well, even if you don't want it, (laughs) it's got to be thrown at you. Just it's got to be thrown at you. So being intentional about how am I going to walk through this life, given that you're not cloistered away in a monastery, you know, you're living life. And so you're going to need to be prepared. Yeah. And you talked about community as part of that. One of the things that we have been working on in the husband material community is becoming safe men, becoming curious about each other's stories and offering compassion for emotional pain And I'm imagining that after this episode, we might have some guys opening up about their trauma and about racism in different ways. And so I want to encourage everyone, let's respond with curiosity and compassion so that we can continue to become more safe. Yeah, exactly. And I think that oftentimes the feedback that I get from people in the listening um, white folks is, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to, you don't really have to do anything. You can just be in the ministry of presence, which is just that you're just, you're just there. You're there and you're listening. And as you said, you're there, you're being curious and just asking questions around clarification and asking the person, what is it? How can I help you in this versus um, thinking you have to have the answers because you don't have the answers. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there are no words. Exactly. And I think that, you know, you're also dealing with, um, as people are sharing some of the trauma and stuff, they're also having to work through their anger and they're, they're, you know, they're carrying unforgiveness around stuff. And it's, and this is not to push people to do that. They'll do that in their own time, but to recognize that um, this is, this experiences, these experiences are not trite. They're not small. There isn't this, let's rush to forgiveness, like pushing the person, well, ah, you just need to forgive. Cause that's one of the steps, and, you know, it's like the person will get there, but they'll get there when they, they actually see that this brother actually, res- you know, respects my story, honors my story. Um, and, and this person's willing to work with me and wait, wait while I work through this. Cause if you haven't dealt with the anger and the, the sadness around it, the grief, the loss, the pain of it all. Um, the last thing you need is someone like pushing you to do something when, you know, walking with them is a much better, better opposition. Just being and being in the discomfort, being in the anxiety, being in, in the ambiguity. Yeah. And that's hard for most people to do because we want to we just generally, it's human nature. We want, we want to be in control. We want control. We want to have the answers. We want to be able to give the answers, but to be able to sit. And particularly if you, you've never heard that story before, it's, can you honor that? But you haven't heard it before. And so it's new and it's real for the person on the ground. And I, I, I think one of the challenges, I think, for men of color is that coming out of 2020, where it really felt like, wow, like, you know, all these people out on the streets, people are marching, like everybody's like, whoa, you know, with the death of George Floyd, like their eyes were open and then we saw a backlash. And then, so what is that 
how does that feel for the man of color who feel at one point like, wow, like people are finally getting it. They're finally seeing, I feel like I'm seeing, I feel like the pain and the trauma I've been carrying is being recognized. And then to have the backlash of no, <laughs> like, we're not going to deal with that. We're not going to go there. Um, and how can collectively we respond as, uh, you know, the, the Lord really is clear about how do we respond and look at the past? Uh, you know, that the past really, if you look at the commands he gave to Israel about, you know, in terms of celebrations and how it was, it's a messy mess. <laughs> it really is. But he, but God says, and even when he does the, the whole lineage thing and you're like, whoa, okay, there was a prostitute there. There was a guy who killed somebody's husband to get the woman. It's just, it's a mess, but it's true. It's, it's true, and it's not to glorify the mess, but it's to say this is a part of the story, and you, there's a reason why. You look at the past, and you look at that stuff, that mess, because you're saying, you know what, I'm going to learn from that, and I, I don't want to do that now. Um, and if there's stuff that I'm dealing with, and I talk about this in the book, that sometimes there, there does need to be repair. That is that if I'm carrying some benefits from what happened a long time ago, then I need to really look at that. If I, you know, my ancestors burned down Black Wall Street in Tulsa, and now, you know, my college is built on that land or whatever, like I need to look at that. I just, it's not just okay to go, you know, I'm going to decimate that and then walk away and benefit. Now, I, this is for the body. Whatever the world wants to do, the world's going to do. But as the body, how do we recognize and how, what does repentance look like? And how do we actually turn around, stop, stop what we're doing, turn around, go in the opposite direction. Um, and sometimes that means making amends and it, and which is certainly part of 12 step and, um, and engaging in repair. And so it's, it's looking at that's, that's a part of healing as well is, um, is beyond the, into the personal stuff and the personal journey of getting whole and sharing your story um, and the Lord healing. Uh, to the broader, um, broader society. Yeah. And being part of the solution in some way. Yeah. You were talking about men of color. And one of my favorite parts of the book is when you talked about your husband's experiences and some of the profound healing for him. Yeah. Could you say more about that? Yeah. So he, um, I, I mentioned had grown up in the UK, they immigrated to the US and he shared a lot about like those early, that early experiences of being in school and having um, to deal with racism that popped up there. Um, he's, you know, really mathematically brilliant. And, um, and so, you know, going in, he ended up going to MIT and um, that was not necessarily the, the pivotal issue. Like he did, while at MIT experienced a bunch of stuff <laughs> that was problematic and professors that were blatantly racist and, and, you know, most were not, but he did encounter that. And, and yet he had to kind of pack it in. And a lot of it centered around the period where he was a junior and his father passed away um, from prostate cancer. And there's a layer on that and that there's, They've noted that black men tend to, they have a high rate of prostate cancer. 
but they also have a high rate of it not being treated well, even if they've gone to the doctor. And that certainly was the case with his father. And so he ended up, he, he got prostate cancer. Um, and during that time, his father, um, this, actually the, the first go round, uh, my husband was younger uh, and his, his father gave his life to Christ and, uh, and his whole family. And, and he, my father says from the age of about 12, 13, he got the father that he always wanted. Prior to that, he was just an angry, uh, he, the father experienced so much racial trauma in, in the UK, um, as well as um, in the city, in, in New York. And, um, and then he has this wonderful father. And then by junior year, so he's like, at the time, I think like 19 or so, his father dies. And he just packs that away. And, and he thinks, well, this is not going to affect him, but it does affect him. It affects him in terms of how he relates to um, people, men, women, everybody. And just there's a part of him kind of walled off. Um, and so in the in, during that kind of walled off period, I think he was starting to kind of branch out a bit. And so we met and um, we were part of just healing groups and stuff out of the church. You know, my background is as a counselor. And so I share the this one, there were two incidences, but one where we were at a ministry time and what came up for him was a lot of grief around his father. Uh, and just the fact that he didn't even cry, you know, had a hard time at the funeral, was not able to really access that and just kind of packed it, packed it away. And then the second one was, so if you think about it, the, his father passed away junior year. We got married in um, early, our early 30s. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of time there. We made a trip to South Africa. We're doing a ministry, um, a ministry and it was during that time, like men and women were in different groups and he was in a small group with Afrikaner men and he was the only black person. Um, and that was uh, so like extraordinary and pivotal for him because one, here we are in South Africa and the fact that, um, you know, this is um, South Africa became free from apartheid in 1994 um, with Nelson Mandela's. And so we're not talking that long ago because this was like 2000. So we're talking six years after. If you think about this, if you think about the U.S. in 1960s, South Africa was that way to the mid-90s. <laughs> 1990s, not 60s, 90s, right. Okay, so, and a lot of these Afrikaner men benefited because it was the apartheid system was um, was basically orchestrated by the, the um, Afrikaners. And so for him to be in this environment and, um, and really feeling like the Lord is telling him, you need to be honest. Um, this was the moment where he got in touch with a bunch of stuff. One was around the racism, uh, the racial trauma, but also around the loss of his father um, and being vulnerable with these men um, was huge, huge, huge. And just, um, he has this experience and I recount that in the book of just really in prayer, like seeing the Lord being the, the, the impact of the crucifixion and just what Jesus endured um, and just how traumatic that was uh, and how for him, it just, it, it felt like this is real and how, as he's sharing this in the group, the white men 
and the group are like in tears. They're just like, wow. They, as he's sharing his story and they're realizing just the impact, not only of him, he's this man who came from America, you know, he's via the UK, but the black South Africans who are there and how are they experiencing this? How are they experiencing trauma? racial trauma, um, having lived under apartheid, and what was their role in it. Um, and so it's always like when it, when a group is just really amazing is when, you know, you might be focusing on one person, but, you know, there's someone across, <laughs> you know, who's like, the, the Lord's like, oh, and you, I want you to, you know, and that you just know, okay, Holy Spirit's present, <laughs> doing something amazing. And so that was a really powerful um, and healing experience for him of God saying, I'm bringing you back to Africa, to the soil and um, for your healing. And in the most odd way, <laughs> with the most odd group of people, you just think, well, this just does not make any sense. <laughs> but God does often. It's, um, you know, foolish things to shame the wise or whatever. Yeah. I love that story. It's a great example of a, a new term that you introduced to me of post-traumatic growth. Yeah, yes, yeah. We talk about post-traumatic stress. What about post-traumatic growth? Yeah, well, one of the things with post-traumatic growth is that they see that two things. One is that we can have these painful experiences, but what comes out of that, there's a, there's a way in which there's meaning-making where we come to a sense of, okay, that that's what that was about, or that's what, what strengths have come out of that. Um, there are ways in which we can have positive experiences that actually along the way reverse the negative stuff that has happened. Um, and they've, you know, they've done the research around that, 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 that is a reality. Um, and so, and you can find that embedded in scripture in terms of how the Lord is constantly telling, you know, yes, we're to examine things and we're to, we're to know history, et cetera. But, um, you know, he came causing all things to work together for good, for our good, um, for those who are called according to his purpose. And you just think, how the heck is he going to make this good? <laughs> and yet when you have perspective, you don't, you may not even think, oh, this is good, but you can then see, wow, I can see that God was with me through it. I can see that he's with me now. I can see that, you know, I'm now able to comfort others with the comfort that I've received. Like that's all part of, of post-traumatic growth is that we then move from just, it's just about me, but it's then it becomes more outward. Like, okay, how can I then serve other people? How can I minister to them and walk with them with, with the healing that I've gotten? Well, Sheila, thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that right now on this episode. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is great. You're welcome. And one final question. What is your favorite thing about healing? You know what? I think that I would say that when we are healed, we are able to then impact like the next generation on on multiple levels um, because it's not just you know we we carry those this the whole study of epigenetics and that we can even have our 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 DNA can be affected by trauma from the past. But when healing happens, you know we can disrupt that. Um, not just epigenetically, but even behaviorally, like how are we engaging with our children, with our neighbors? Um, and then just healing opens up that, that ability to 
scripture says, you know, what's everything is the law, the prophets, everything is on love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And on that holds everything. And so healing is we are better able to, to love God and to love our neighbor and to love ourselves. Yes. I'm all fired up now. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, guys, know that Sheila's information and links to her books are all included in the show notes. I highly recommend going through some of her material and the other resources we've provided for you on this topic. Always remember, you are God's beloved son and you, he is well pleased. (laughs) 